Welcome to the Off Street Podcast featuring Adam Reiner and Sean Dan. Off Street contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and contains certain forward-looking statements of future possibilities that due to known and unknown risks and other uncertainties and factors may differ materially from actual results. As such, there is no guarantee that any views and opinions expressed herein will come to pass. Off Street is presented for informational purposes and nothing contained herein should be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell any security or as an offer to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. Additionally, this communication contains information derived from third-party sources. Although we believe these sources to be reliable, we make no representations as to their accuracy or completeness. Adam and Sean are employees of Marshall Financial Group, Inc., a registered investment advisor. For additional information about the firm, including its services and fees, send for the firm's disclosure brochure or visit advisorinfo.sec.gov. All right, Sean, it is Thursday, December 28th, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. If you're listening to this, it is January 3rd. <laughs> we, yeah, we we're talking to you from 2023. You will be sitting in 2024. Happy New Year. Hope it went well. Hope you had a great night. Hope you've, you're sticking to your resolutions through three days. We'll talk about resolutions in a minute. But... Hope you enjoyed the awards <laughs> show episode. Yes, that you know came out this week. Fun episode to record, fun episode to edit. But yeah, we are now in a new chapter of the podcast, 2024. Episode thirty eight. Think we'd be surprised if you told us this started twenty twenty three. We would we would log that many episodes. I'm impressed by it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're gonna you're away on our normal recording day, January second, Tuesday. Yes. A bucket list trip for you. Yes, very excited. A last, last minute bucket list trip. Last minute bucket list trip. So I will be down at Duke University. I'll be watching Duke play Syracuse on Tuesday night. Um, from Cameron Indoor, anyone who's a college basketball fan, obviously that's iconic. Maybe the the pinnacle of college basketball venues. Um, Probably one of the most well known college basketball venues in the country. Easily, easily. I think you can you can make a strong case it's it's the best. But I've never been there. I've always wanted to go. Last second had the chance to buy tickets actually in the student section. Um, so hopefully we'll be right down there on the court. And uh, yeah, so that is why we're recording early. We'll be looking for you. Yeah. Maybe you'll wear a little face paint. (laughs) (laughs) So you alluded to it earlier. It is the time of year where Americans make resolutions. And Americans this year have one resolution in mind. It is number one. Any any guess? I I could pretend I don't know it. I know it. So I'm not not going to guess. I'm not going to guess. We're not going to test your acting (laughs) skills. Everyone at home will pause now for have you guess. Yes. It is nothing exercise or health related. Surprise me. Feel like it normally is. Those are three, four, and five. Okay. Exercising more, improving physical health, and eating healthier are three, four, five. Number one on the list, we're a finance podcast, saving more money. It's convenient for us and obviously a great goal. Who who couldn't benefit from saving yes. more money? Great goal to have. Looks but like- no, no, I have to slip number two in here. Because it surprised me. Okay. It was being happy. Yeah. It made us a little sad <laughs> when, was, when we read that, right? Sad like, read. obviously, great goal. I think everyone should strive to save more money, be happy, and exercise more in 2024. It's a, be, great be a great year. Yeah. <laughs> be a great year, but yeah. So, uh, you know, I think if you go three for the three on those, you're, you probably had a good 2024. But as you said, save more money, 23% of people listed that as a resolution. That's higher than it was coming into 2023, where 20% of people said it. Bit of a sidebar here. The being happy piece. Maybe that ties into the whole vibe session dynamic where consumers have felt bad, but they've continued to spend. Maybe people just don't want to feel bad anymore. Yeah, there we go. 
I, I, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking of the vibe session in a different light of, uh-oh, the save more money. Are people finally realizing, hey, we've been spending too much oh, the that, past that, few years, and that that's what's propping be up the economy. I, which, I feel like people have a goal of trying to save money every year. Every and year. And be healthier. Yeah, which speaking of people like not really sticking to their goals, I read this whole article. I'm all in on New Year's resolutions. And then you get to the end. They asked people how, how confident they are that they're going to keep their resolutions in 2024. Only 36% of people said they're very likely to keep these resolutions for the entire year. Feels a bit like quitting before you get started. Like, what's the point? <laughs> like, why even set these goals if, if you go into it with the mindset of like, yeah, I probably won't make it. Yeah, I guess like, if your expectations you are low, you can't be disappointed then. I guess. Related, 2023 podcast guest, Brian Walsh, one of the interviews we did while we were out at the FPA conference in Phoenix, uh, we had spoken to him about financial influencers and the good and bad uh, advice that they give. There's a piece published on CNBC this past week that features him speaking on this topic. And he mentions that, you know, social media has become a blessing and a curse as it comes to personal finances. He said, on the good, it's a way for younger people and actually anyone of any age to get exposed to financial knowledge in bite-sized pieces. I think when we were prepping, you had mentioned one of the quotes that he'd said to us during the podcast yeah, when we talked to him, he he alluded to the fact of it's like a little kid. You're like trying to, you're trying to get them to eat their vegetables, yes. but you need to present it to them in a more palatable way. You can't just give them broccoli and expect to like you have to like dress it up with, I don't know. I think it's like broccoli and cheddar, right? Like yeah. put a little cheese on there to make it more palatable. He says the curse of social media is really there's no barrier to entry, and it can really become hard for people to know what's reliable and financial information. Versus something that's quite frankly is going to get them in trouble. Yes. And on the other side of that, the keeping it entertaining part, we know from experience that sometimes it's hard to make <laughs> good financial advice and financial news entertaining. So <laughs> keeping people engaged. Yes. So he breaks down the three red flags in this piece. He says, number one, the advice sounds too good to be true. There are no quick fixes, overnight success stories, get rich quick schemes for personal finance. Number two. Uh, they promote extremes and absolutes. Uh, financial influencers who take extreme stances or speak in absolutes on financial topics also raise red flags. And the third, they have the same solution for every problem. He gives the example of someone positioning life insurance as a solution for if you die, for retirement savings, for saving for college, for emergency fund, etc. For two of the three, I thought of one person. Yeah, I, know, I already know who you're going to say it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, Dave, that Dave Ramsey. <laughs> but. Definitely Dave Ramsey. But I will give him, I guess, one piece of credit because especially we, t we tie these two together of the financial influencers and advice and then the New Year's resolution of wanting to save more. Maybe it's not the most efficient way. Maybe he doesn't do everything exactly right. But you got to give him credit of, I guess, the scare tactics he uses of getting people to save, save more. That's fair. Because saving is is so, so important. I, I think especially when people talk to us on kind of the investment side of the financial planning world, everyone wants to talk about rate of return and what's the best investment and all that stuff when really saving more solves so many of those issues. Like a, a lot of times people look at it as a rate of return issue when it's really a savings issue. The more you save, the, the less you have to earn on your investments. And it's really, really powerful. Kind of the earlier you save, the better you end up. 
And for consumers, it's really the one thing that they control yes. in their financial lives. Yes. Like you can't control what markets do. Returns are variable. But you can control how much you spend and save to a certain extent. I, I think the phrase you used earlier, which was really good, is you can't – what was it? You can't invest your way out of a savings problem. You can't grow your way out of a savings problem. Yeah. Like the yeah. math is just really hard when you break it down. Uh, we, we quickly, I quickly did something like back of the envelope earlier of – I don't know if you have two people and, and one person's investing twice as much as the other, the, the rate of return difference you would need to have if you're the person saving half as much to catch up to that person in the long run is it's just astronomical. You, if you can address it on the savings end, it, it creates a lot less headaches and stress on the investment end. So if you are one of those Americans that has saving more as a New Year's resolution, just be mindful of the financial advice that you're getting, where you're getting it from, how you implement it. Hopefully, you're not one of the 34% or whatever the number was. 36. 36%. That's ready to quit before you even start. Yes. <laughs> or no, what is six, the opposite. 60, uh, only 36% said they were going to keep it, so 60 plus. So they're going to quit. So sitting here right now, Sean, the S&P 500 is less than 10 points away from an all-time high. Yes. Man is craning on Bloomberg this morning, said he could smell all-time highs. <laughs> you could smell them, Adam. What does it smell like? <laughs> does it smell like money, I guess? But but yes, we are it's we're coming up on the two year anniversary of our last all time high. So that was January third, twenty twenty two. It's Which crazy. Is kind of kind of crazy, right? It's pretty rare you go two full years. We talk about all the time the market normally goes up. The, the to have two full years below that high water mark is very, very rare. Imagine telling someone in January of twenty two that they wouldn't see these levels again on the S&P until the beginning of 24. It'd be brutal. And like I said, I think we talked about it before. I have to put my hand up. The first trading day of 2022, I vividly remember. It was an up day. I think we are up 40 basis points, roughly. And I said to you, we're 1-0 on the year. It's a great, great sign. Well, what was my reply? It's not how you open. It's how, it's you, how you close. close. <laughs> yeah, well, we haven't seen those levels <laughs> since. So it might be on me a little bit. But I have some some headlines and some happenings from the last time we are at all-time highs just to kind of show you how long it's been. Okay. So these are headlines from either January 2nd or January 3rd, 2022. So on January 3rd, 2022, Elizabeth Holmes, we talked about in our last episode, was officially found guilty, her trial concluded, okay. of her Theranos fraud. The Omicron variant of COVID was surging. I remember that when everyone knew what variant was going around. Yes. So COVID was still very much top of mind. Apple became the first company to mm. reach a $3 trillion valuation, which just earlier today, people were talking about projections for $4 trillion. Um, inflation was just about to cross 7%, but I believe at the time it was still kind of an afterthought. It was base effects, transitory, right, all those right. sorts of things. Supply side dynamics. Yes. And for the sports fans... <laughs> January 2nd was Antonio Brown's last game in the NFL because he ripped off his shoulder yes, pads. the, the sideline <laughs> meltdown. And ran off the field. Had a very public meltdown uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's hard to believe that was only that was two years ago. Memorable day in sports. But, yes, like you said, all those things two years ago feels like a lifetime. Over that two-year period, it has been interesting to see how market sentiment has shifted once the calendar year has turned. Very fragmented. Yes. At the end of 21, heading into 22, market was nearing its all-time high. We cr calendar flipped into 22. 
and there were only two trading days during 2022 where the S&P had positive year-to-date returns. That's such a crazy stat. January 3rd and January 4th. Okay. And then we were negative the rest of the year. Straight downhill. Calendar changes 2023. Only two trading days this year or this past year when you're listening to the podcast (laughs) when that market had negative year-to-date returns january 3rd january 5th that's that's a crazy stat so by the time you're listening to this podcast (laughs) we could be setting the tempo for the rest of the year it is very interesting 21 to 22 22 to 23 it really was just you flip the page and the whole the whole narrative is different it's like heading in to 24 backdrops a little different than the prior year and 23 a large portion of s&p returns came from multiple expansion rather from than from earnings earnings were flat at best yeah so prices prices on stocks went up quicker than the earnings earnings, which was a little different than 22 most of the downside came from multiple contraction which was the opposite, and earnings growth was actually positive. Yes. It was the net contributor. So it'll be interesting to see what forces uh, help shape the market in 24. I think for the most part, strategists expect a flat market. I know, like... We talk all that trash on the strategists, (laughs) and now we're quoting their projections. (laughs) I know. But that's... So I'll give the range. Uh, The average S&P year-end estimate... For 24 is 48.33, which is a little more than a 1% gain from the levels that we're at right now. The high estimate is 5,200, so an 8.5% gain. And then the low estimate is 4,200, so a little more than a 12% decline. Well, if history holds, we'll, we, yes. we'll be outside that range. <laughs> One way or the other. <laughs> On the bond side, going into this year, being 24, 67 rate cuts priced into the market, a lot different than heading into 23. Over the next 12, 13 months, they expect the Fed funds rate to get down to 3.6% is what the market's pricing. We're at 5.5 right now. Yeah, it seems a little rosy, optimistic. Yes. But in the end, narrative was cash is a great investment to hold in 23. And here we are at the end of the year and the ag is outperformed. The, the Vanguard Federal Money Market Fund, which is one of the largest money markets out there. Another feather in the cap of if everyone's all in on investment, it's maybe not the best sign. One of those topics that just hasn't gone away over the past two years, will we have a recession? Any guess on what probability of a recession will be for this coming year? Uh, I don't know. Again, we talk smack on people who do this, and then we ask, we ask questions ourselves. I don't know. I think everything on balance, I'd, I'd say probably not likely, right? Like, I'd, unless the consumer really just falls off a cliff and saves more money, like we talked about, and, and doesn't spend, maybe that happens. But it's it's hard to see any major obvious stumbling blocks. Unless, say, inflation reaccelerates, but even that, yeah. like, I, I don't think really anyone expects this year. So, well, economists also don't seem to know. <laughs> the average is a 50% chance of recession. Good. So, All right. fl- flip a coin. The high is a 70% chance from Jeffrey's group. The low is 15% from KPMG. But starting this week of the new year, lots of economic data comes out, probably punctuated by the jobs data that comes out on Friday. So that really will upset the tempo for the week. But interestingly enough, mortgage rates 
which peaked near 8% in 23, getting down into the mid-sixes, I think, for a lot of people, waiting to see what happens if they dip below 6%. That feels like a, a big psychological barrier. Like, just a, that five handle, like a number starting with a five, feels so much more palatable than a number that starts with a six. And six feels so much better than eight, so... I don't know. Get ready to fire up your Zillow, Adam. I don't know. <laughs> Zillow. I'm just thinking refinancing probably coming in if yeah. rates to below six. We had saw it this in 23, rates below six, buyer demand came in. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But interesting piece as it relates to housing, I believe this was from the Wall Street Journal, the rise of forever renters. Americans who would traditionally be homeowners have become long-term renters including some with no plans to ever buy a home. Yeah, this this was fascinating to me. And I don't know, I probably lean to the idea that this is transitory, to borrow that word. Uh, this is just a sign of the times of really expensive to buy a home, but there's still rich people that want to live lavishly. Um, the article talked a lot about people that make, you know, say 200 grand or more a year. Usually those people are buying homes in America. More and more, we're seeing those people rent at luxury units and luxury apartments that are opening up. You know, I think it's probably extrapolating a little too much to say those people are never going to buy homes and just rent forever. I think so. I agree with that. I think this is a function of high rates, not a lot of housing supply right now. We talked, talked, spoken about housing quite a bit on the podcast from private equity firms buying single family homes to where rates are and just comparing the difference in mortgage or principal and interest payments over the past few years, how they've gone up so dramatically. I mean, you just look at those, those quote-unquote luxury units. It's like you look at the price point you can get there for, say, you know, 1,500 square feet versus if you buy a new home at that square footage is usually a lot more. The monthly P&I, it's more expensive right now, it feels like, to get a home that gives you the same thing that renting an apartment would give you. You just lose it on the equity. Yeah, it does still feel like, though, home ownership is just a cornerstone piece of the American dream. Yeah, I, again, which is why I, th- I think it's a good point that it's probably not going anywhere. Because if you look it up, compared to other developed nations, the U.S. actually has a very high home ownership rate. Like if you look at some of the peers, for example, Switzerland, Germany, France, the U.K., Canada – they all have lower home ownership rates and higher renting rates compared to the U.S. has a home ownership rate of 58% as of 2021. It also signifies a lot of things, independence for one, financial stability for another, prosperity, perhaps. Absolutely. One quote here, they, they ask someone who's in that high income bracket but is still renting, they say, it's not that we can't afford to buy, it's that we don't want to and we don't feel like it's worth it. And I think it's that last part. We don't feel like it's worth it right now. I think at some point, again, it's going to be probably worth it. And comparatively, you get a better deal buying. But right now, it's not worth it. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. I could see for some would-be purchasers that they would prefer to rent. Maybe if their job moves around quite a bit. Maybe if they're just not handy. They don't want to take on the household projects and that can just be outsourced to the the landlord. Like That makes sense to me. But I, I still think for most people, home ownership is just one of those goals. I think there are two things that are like fabrics of Americanism. It's home ownership and dislike of taxes. Yeah. All right. That's, that's a good one, too. Absolutely. It's really the way the country was founded. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's a great point. It's a great point. 
So if you are renting or own your home, usually in the fall, you have to clean up leaves. This is a hard transition to uncorrelated, Sean. All right, yeah, I like I like the uh, transition, though. King of transitions, Adam Reiner. <laughs> and there was a piece, and it I think this was from Wall Street Journal. Meet the neighbors who want your leaves. I'm stealing, but it's good for the earth. This was a funny one. While most Americans toil every fall to rid their lawns of leaves, raking and blowing them away to be bagged up and sent off, a growing group see them as a valuable resource. So the TLDR version of the story is there's a group of people that go around, take your bagged leaves, and they use them for mulch and composting and are trying to get others to do the same instead of just throwing them out. Which, if someone, I don't have a ton of leaves that I need to clean up every fall, but if I did and someone wanted to steal them, they are more than welcome to. By all, by all <laughs> means. Yeah, this is a kind of a growing trend, especially in those environmentally focused people of the benefit of leaves. They provide good mulch for their gardens, provides a habitat for a lot of small insects and quote-unquote critters. Um, and there was a, a campaign back in 2024 that I guess has taken off called Leave the Leaves. Where they're even trying to tell people, don't bag up your leaves at all. Just leave them and they'll disintegrate by, decompose by the spring. See you shaking your head already at that. This is not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's a little unsightly, I would think, if you just leave mounds of leaves indefinitely. But And aren't, aren't most people trying to actively rid of their critters? Of yeah. Critters? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, they listed some of the critters. I was like, I don't know if I want those constantly around me. No, but people who go around collecting these leaves have leaf preferences. Yes. They prefer certain leaves over others. I think there was one person here who doesn't like maple leaves or maybe oak leaves. Oak leaves. O- oak leaves take a while to decompose. Yes. So, so it's not a bad good for leaf. Garden. It's a bad leaf. Who knew? But I did look it up. An American spends over $100 billion a year on their lawns. I read the same article. I had the same stat written there you down. Go. <laughs> Pulled that from the Philly Inquirer. All right, there we go. Maybe that's part of the reason people don't feel like raking leaves. Yeah, save money on in leaf blowers. Leaf blowers are such a hot button issue. If you rent, you probably don't need the rake. So this title or this article, which I first saw yesterday, the the headline is Steve Ballmer is set to make a billion dollars a year doing nothing. One could argue that Steve Ballmer already put in the work that's going to help him make a billion dollars definitely clickbait title but yes in in theory passive income sure so steve ballmer former ceo of microsoft um, owns 333 million shares of the company as of 2014 the article says that is the last time he filed an ownership disclosure for the stock so he owns about four percent of microsoft microsoft is going to pay a three dollar dividend next year and unless something changes and they were to cut their dividend and taking those two pieces of information together, a billion dollars. A billion dollars. Of dividend income. It's crazy. It says Balmer's already the sixth richest person in the world. Um, as you said, owns about 4% of Microsoft. He's been there since the start. There's those videos of him and, oh, and Bill Gates yes. going on the road early on of him trying to hype up the crowd like a crazy sweaty. But, um, yeah, a billion dollars means he's facing a tax bill about 200 mil next year yes well something light <laughs> this, this is our our capstone article here for this podcast i'm sure the fintech influencers who love passive income will love that he's going to generate a billion dollars of dividend income and then the americans who hate taxes 
it's going to pay $200 million in taxes. That's insane. Yeah, you throw in the clickbait title of he's getting it for doing nothing, and you got got a perfect storm. And here we are talking about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, only, you know, I shouldn't say only to be beaten. We don't know for sure, but likely only to be beaten next year by Warren Buffett in dividend income. Do you see how much he's set to make next year? Has to be like five. They es- they right. estimate a Warren Buffett should take in about six billion. Six billion in dividends in twenty twenty four. So, see you guys. That's that's all you need to do to be a billionaire. Is if you have all those billions, you can just put it on autopilot and collect billions more in dividends. What they say your your first billion is the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> it's that easy. And actually, speaking of fintech, there was a one that was going making the rounds on Twitter yesterday of this girl was basically saying it's easy to become a millionaire because she said if if you just get 2% returns per day. Oh, that's it. For the next two years in a row, you can turn like $200 into however many millions. And she's like, people think it's so, people make it so hard. Just get 2% a day. 2% a day. <laughs> so that's all you got to do, Adam, is just like be the best in the world at investing for 700 days in a row and you can turn a couple hundred into a couple mil. I guess it's a question of are you lucky or are you good? <laughs> I would gladly be lucky for two years. Sure. To get 2%. Why not? Yeah, why not? If she can offer me an instrument that will do that, I will uh, show me show me the paper. I'll sign it. I don't know. I think we have to go back to Brian Walsh. If it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> yes, after betting it, of course. <laughs> Parting thoughts? Like like we've, we've talked about, we're kind of in this lull and end of year period here. See what the first few days of 2024 give us, but um, going to continue to hope we chug along here. Hopefully, by the time you listen to this, we'll be at all time highs. Hopefully, and, uh, keep rolling from there. Jump right into economic data. So we go from very slow period to right back into real data, real trading as we start the new year. And if the past two years are any indication, <laughs> hopefully, it is a, a positive start to the year. Yes, pay attention to the first few days. <laughs> but. Otherwise, uh, until next time. Until next time. See you then.